Coffee with George Kokolas and Virginia Dooley. <laughs> well, I'm laughing because this is a very, a very, another very special episode, and this time that we are recording right now, uh, we have realized that our guest is somehow nine hours behind us, and we are, are uh, uh, nine hours ahead of him. So in Honduras right now is midnight, whether in Europe it's uh, nine o'clock a.m. And um, welcome, Gina. Um, another Hello. piece of coffee. Thank you. Bright and early for us, nice and late for our guest. But our guest comes from a very exotic place, so I almost wish I was there with her. I've never <laughs> been there. So our guest today is from exotic Honduras. Exactly. And and her name is Do you want to present. Yeah, go on. Yeah. <laughs> I want to present because um I've met her before, not in person, never in person, but uh, we have coincided in several conferences. I know that she's a very active person. And as you said, to me, Honduras also sounds so exotic. So I would love to know more, both about her and her country. So we are very happy to have here with us together, Grazia, Maria, Mendoza, Cirinos um, from Honduras. Grazia, welcome to Teachers Coffee. Thank you for having me and thank you for the invitation to share and learn together and talk a little bit about Honduras and talk a little bit about me. Uh, I'm really happy to, to be part of this uh, interview today. Wonderful. Okay, geographically we know where Honduras is, it's in Central America, but you know, we, we, won't we need some pictures from your country. And uh, if then gradually are going to make it more specifically into ELT, but how is Honduras? I mean, uh, and then you can tell us a little bit about your story there. So I, I can be a little bit biased because I love my country. So <laughs> it is a wonderful <laughs> country. It has uh, different climates. We're fortunate to have different climates depending on where you go in the country. Uh, it's usually warm and tropical because we are, like you said, in Central America. And I always like to say that we are in the heart of the American continent because we are like just in the middle of mm -hmm. the continent. And um, we have a different areas. We have like the north area and the south area where we have the beaches. If you go north, you're going to find Caribbean beaches, white sand, blue sea, transparent. If you go south and people usually think of the south as that they don't like it a lot because the sand is volcanic sand because of the little island of Amapala that is there. But other people uh, enjoy that. And if you're located in the capital city, uh, I am from the capital city. So and if you're located there, you're a two hour drive to the south beaches and a four hour drive to the north beaches. So you have uh, from the center of the country go inside uh, we're going to go to the beach for the weekend and we just take a car and go to the beach so we also have mountains and we are able to do 
now with this uh, sports and adventures that are very risky and dangerous, people do canopy and do all kinds of stuff in the mountains in the Western region. And we have a special uh, department we call, we divide our, our country in 18 departments. And we have a special department called Intibuca, which actually has cold weather and the temperatures can go all the way down to four degrees or minus zero sometimes. And we have had very special years when it has actually kind of snowed a little bit, like not not snow, like very a lot of inches of snow, but like a little bit of, um, I don't know, uh, you can see the little specks of snow and people say, oh, it's snowing. So that's, but that's something that happens every, I don't know, <laughs> not often. And then to the east, we also have the jungle. And this is usually not a place that people often visit because the access uh, can be very expensive and it can be a little bit complex. But we are fortunate to have different, uh, a rich tradition. We are fortunate to have different types of dishes depending on where we go. And people always say, well, our dishes are better than the others, right? Like, like in every country. Uh, we, like like every country does, and I have found this when I have traveled and talked to people from other countries, mm. we also have the other country. Our other country is Olancho, and that's located in the east part. Like, it's the biggest department and where a lot of production happens. Uh, we have a rich indigenous um, tradition as well, although, unfortunately, we have not very been very good at protecting their languages and their and their uh, customs. So we, we have not done a very good job there. Lately, uh, people have started to work on this, but we have not very good at that. In the Western region, we have the Copan ruins uh, that describe the whole Mayan culture and that extends all the way to Guatemala and Mexico as well. Um, we are a very religious country also. Uh, mostly Catholic, so people enjoy all those uh, traditional uh, holidays and religious traditions. Our food is delicious. If you ever come to Honduras, a must is to try baleadas, and baleadas mm -hmm. is a, a flour tortilla with fried beans and cream. So if you come to Honduras, you have to try that. If you don't try that, you have never been to Honduras. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a must. <laughs> that's wonderful because the way you describe it, you know, I think Gina should book a ticket to Honduras. And yeah, actually, it really, yeah. you, you did convince <laughs> me. There's all these things to do and the different parts of the of the country as well. It really sounds very exotic and inter interesting. We have to. George, have you been? No, no. You've been to no, no. many places? It's a, yeah, it's one, it's one flag that I miss from Latin America. But, uh, <laughs> okay. But Grazia, tell us a little bit about yourself, because apart from coming from a fascinating country, you are also a very fascinating person. Uh, I, I, can, I have to, to uh, give this testimony here to our listeners. You are very active on social media, very positive all the time, smiling, doing things, very creative. You are also very much um, involved with the association of teachers. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your career. So I have been an educator for 30 years. I have been fortunate to teach all levels. I've been, I have taught uh, pre-kinder, elementary, secondary, higher education. I was a higher education professor for 12 years. 
Uh, I have also been a teacher trainer for 15 years. I have had the chance to work with teachers all over the world through TESOL and uh, different uh, TESOL affiliates. I have, um, this has helped me understand that as teachers and as language educators, our challenges are pretty similar, right? And our contexts are different. So we can find that common ground when we talk about things and we can share lessons learned and best practices. I have been involved with TESOL International Association since 2007. This is my professional home. I was part of the board from 2019 to 2022, and it was a great experience for me, but I have volunteered with the association since the very moment that I joined, and it has been a very rewarding experience. It's It's been a win-win situation for me because I have learned a lot and I have been able to give a lot. So uh, that's, uh, that's really important for me as, as a professional and as a person Person. And because of my engagement with TISWA International, uh, the U.S. Embassy in 2014, uh, in the U.S. Embassy here in Tegucigalpa asked me if I could work on putting together the local uh, Honduran Association. And at first I was like, wow, that's a lot of work. <laughs> and they said, well, you know, we have this money here. We want to fund this initiative. Uh, can you do that? We did it with a group, a small group of people, and in 2014, we founded uh, Helta TISO. It's the Honduran English Language Teacher Association. And we have been going on strong for nine years. This, uh, in November 25th, we're gonna have our ninth uh, online convention. And next year, which is going to be our 10th anniversary, we're going to have our in-person convention. So you're invited, it's gonna be in Copan. So you're gonna be able to look at the ruins and everything if you come. So you're invited to that. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Wow. Yeah. Sounds exciting, sounds exciting. So. That's very interesting. How tell us a bit more about like what's the most common way for um someone like a student to to learn English in Honduras? Is it evening schools? Is it in the main curriculum of the school? Like what's the most common way the students get? So exposed there are many ways. Yeah, there yeah. are many ways that people learn English in Honduras. Uh, we are fortunate that we have usually countries have one binational center. But we are fortunate that we have two binational centers and one is located in the north of the country and the other one is located in the capital. And these binational centers have like little satellite schools in other departments, but we also have other language centers. And this would be like for young adults or adults who want to learn English, like you said, during the evening or in weekend programs. But schools, we also have a lot of bilingual schools. I think uh, there was a last count of bilingual schools in 2015, and we had around 800 bilingual schools out of the 14,000 schools that are in the education system in Honduras. So there are plenty of bilingual schools and people, we have that historical connection to the US because we are uh, in the same geographical area and people attend bilingual schools and bilingual schools can vary in terms of quality, but we have the big bilingual schools with those uh, popular names, very expensive. And we also have the smaller bilingual schools. So there are many ways in which people can learn English. There are also private services. Sometimes teachers offer private classes to small groups of people. And in public schools, uh, there's a mandate from the Ministry of Education that 
you need to start learning English from the fourth grade. Uh, it, it was going to be moved to the first grade, but right now it's from the fourth grade. That doesn't happen like it should, but the mandate is there. And um, there are uh, different types of teachers uh, that, that, that work in those different uh, contexts and they have different maybe proficiency levels, also different types of certifications. So that's more or less uh, how people learn English in Honduras. Absolutely, Graciela. And I'm a little surprised because when somebody listens, at least in Europe, um, the term bilingual school, as you said, the first thing that comes to your mind is something really expensive and some something that people cannot afford. But it looks as though that there, there is a more massive, let's say, offer regarding a bilingual school. And it's something affordable, maybe for more people than, you know, uh, maybe in other countries. And this is good because once you attend the bilingual school, automatically uh, you boost your language skills at a very, very high level. But irrespective of all this offer, and I guess state schools, you know, they do their thing as well and their contribution. What would be the first motive for someone to learn right now English in Honduras? I mean, what is the general consensus of the people? What is the intrinsic motivation that would bring a person, an individual, adult, or maybe not, to come to you and say, look, I want to learn this language? Is it because of this relationship with the United States? maybe exams, maybe professional reasons. How would you define that? So first is that connection historical that we have had to the United States, right? Uh, people, we have been connected. Uh, there's, a, there's a saying or, or something that we reflect upon in our country that in Honduras, every family has at least one person in the United States, whether they have migrated regularly or irregularly. Mm -hmm. And so people are interested in learning the language for those reasons. But in addition, uh, over the last maybe 20 years, uh, the private sector and businesses have made it sort of a requirement in there when they advertise positions in the workplace that people should speak a certain level of English, depending on the position that they are applying to. So people are interested because of professional reasons. Uh, sometimes people see that and, and sometimes they might not use the language as much in, in that workplace, but they see it as an added value. So they think that somebody that has the ability to speak another language, it's going to be added value for the business. Um, also, some people want to travel, others uh, want to secure a job abroad. abroad. So that happens also that people want to have, uh, secure jobs abroad. In the case of students, for example, they want to go to master's programs or PhD programs in English speaking countries and not necessarily only the United States, but anywhere where English is spoken, and especially now that universities are uh, writing agreements with universities in other countries. There's an interest in also learning other languages like French and maybe German and, and making sure that people have access to those languages in order to study in other countries and have a, a participate in exchange programs or things like that. I think that from Central America, we are the country with the highest interest in learning English. When I talk to people in South America, it's a little bit lower, but but I think uh, in our area, like in Central America, we are the ones that have the highest interest in learning English for all those reasons okay. that I mentioned. All right, um, cool. So mostly professional reasons you would say or to travel. So not so much at younger, at younger ages, it's because they have to, because it's a mandate, right? That you mentioned before. 
Okay, yeah, that makes sense. But what about the teachers? Because you mentioned that there's the bilingual schools and also there's the language schools or the private offerings. What what type of teachers teach in in these programs? Like what are what are their um I don't know, their their background? Is there opportunity for them to develop further? Is there like a certain criteria that they need to meet? How does it work? Um in Honduras and of course I know that there has been for the past nine years opportunity since Halta has been developed but in general what, how would you assess the conditions? So the teachers are different depending on where they teach. Um, if they teach in a bilingual school or if they teach in a language center the profile of the teacher might be um, a high school graduate that has the proficiency skills because they graduated from a bilingual school and sometimes they don't have a certification but the schools might train them and provide tra training for them especially for the pedagogical aspect because they have very good proficiency skills they don't see a need to train them in their area but on the area of pedagogical methodological skills. If we talk about the public school system, that's, that's a whole different story. Uh, in our country, the Spanish teacher, according to our, our curriculum, they are able to teach Spanish, English, and arts, whether they are certified uh, in, uh, as long as they are certified in one of those areas. So that means that wow. if I'm an English teacher, I, I, I should be able to teach Spanish and I should be able to teach arts according oh, to our dear. curriculum. Hmm. Yeah, but what is usual is that we have, and especially in elementary, we have Spanish teachers who are teaching English and they are teaching English because of that uh, thing in our system, in our curriculum, but they are also teaching English because maybe they traveled and stayed in the US for six months and they know a little bit of vocabulary mm -hmm. and they're doing a lot of grammar translation and vocabulary lists in the classroom. That's in elementary. In secondary, it's a little bit different because the National Pedagogical University has um, on a bachelor, uh, students with bachelor's degrees in teaching English. So in secondary, it's a little bit different. They are uh, specialized, they are certified, they have their university diploma. Some of them even have master's programs. In 2012, there was a, a, the fundamental law of education was passed and this was supposed to change this because it was going to be a requirement that everybody in the public school system should be a, should at least have an undergraduate degree in teaching uh, pre-primary, uh, primary or secondary, and they should have that, that, that uh, higher education diploma in their discipline. That has not happened completely. Uh, it, it, has, it has moved very slowly. This was supposed to be completed by 2016, but we are still in 2023 and things are still moving slowly. So as you can see, we have teachers that sometimes have the certifications, but sometimes they don't. And a big um, challenge that we have is that we don't have a national professional development system. So that means the teachers need to seek professional development on their own, and especially in the public system. Private school system, bilingual school system, that's not usually a problem because the schools are going to seek uh, professional development for their teachers. But in the public school system, that's where we have the biggest challenges. And this is our biggest population in terms of teachers and in terms of students. So this is where the highest need is. So there are not many opportunities. 
the biggest issue with our Ministry of Education is that their budget, 92% of their budget goes to salaries. So as you can see, there's not a lot of money then to implement important actions to support quality of education. Uh, there are international donors that help our Ministry of Education, but that's not enough, right? The Ministry of Education needs to do their job and sometimes they're not doing that as they should be doing that. Uh, and there are several efforts like USAID has worked uh, with the Ministry of Education to support them with materials, with teacher training, but still that's not, that's not enough. Helta, we have uh, trained over the, over the last nine years, over 3000 teachers. And, but we still feel that there are many gaps that need to be filled and many challenges that need to be, to be addressed. Wonderful. And with these um, uh, comments that you have just made, you're giving me a great pass, you know, for my next question. So you as Graciela right now, uh, maybe through HELTA or as an individual initiative, what would you change if you had the authority so to improve the uh, Honduran ELD? Well, I think the, the first thing is have that professional development system in place. Uh, that is something that needs to be done among different partners. And of course, with the collaboration and the Ministry of Education at the center. I, I think, and especially in English and teaching English, uh, what I would add is we need a major revision of our standards and a comprehensive set of materials that goes along with that. Our curriculum, our last curriculum is from 2000, that's 23 years ago, and it was not implemented fully. So even, even that has not, we don't know if it worked because it was never implemented completely. And then, but we, we have standards that are not aligned with what's happening in the classroom and with the materials that they are getting. And teachers are not getting the right level of a professional development that they need. So there are a lot of things, there are a lot of uh, pieces of the puzzle that needs to go, that need to go into place in order to have a very solid foundation for our teachers and for our learners. So I would say like, if I would go and the first thing that I would do is to have that revision of the standards, alignment of materials and the outcomes that we want our learners to meet in terms of English learning and have everything that the teachers need. We understand that we are not a, a country that has a lot of resources. So we have to adapt to that context, but there are things that can be done through partnerships and there is value in having those partnerships uh, with HELTA, for example. We have done things with the US Embassy for, for a long time, but we have also engaged in partnerships with the British Council. And because of that work, we have supported teachers, for example, in developing their proficiency skills, in developing confidence to teach in the classroom, because we find that sometimes, because teachers don't have access to continuous professional development, their confidence can feel like threatened sometimes, right? And we have been able to work with the British Council in that and the last project that we are that we have been working with them this year has been on designing materials and it's a pilot uh, of materials that are suited for the students context and we have focused in right now in a fourth to sixth grade and secondary education and but but this is like a little bit and there's a, a bigger effort that needs to be made and I think revising those standards and going into that. It is a long-term project, but it's something that can be done maybe in the last, in the next five to 10 years. 
But Gratska, you know, I think from what you have, uh, we've been listening very attentively for almost half an hour. I think you're very passionate about what you're doing. And I think that you are an example uh, of uh, what we call individual change that needs to be the beginning of a collective change as well. Because as you said, this is just a tiny fraction uh, of what someone could change. Um, uh, you need to have more followers. You need to get more people to help you. And I think that's one of the main reasons why we're having this podcast, not only to get to know uh, Honduras and you, but you know uh, all this contribution and all this work that you're doing there needs to go out so maybe more people can actually help. Uh, not only in Honduras, in other countries as well, and help teachers of English, you know, improve their conditions. And because this will automatically reflect to the students. Uh, so thank you for all these things that you have shared here today. But we haven't finished. We have a small surprise for you. And uh, one more. Yeah. One, one more. more question. One more roast question, as we like to call it on, oops, on this podcast. Um. Are you ready for the last question of the show? It's a bit more personal, not so generic, let's say. <laughs> um, okay, so the question is, what was the most challenging interaction you've had during your career? And how did you deal with it? Huh, challenging interaction in terms of like- In terms of what like I you? Do? Yeah maybe questioning about I don't know your knowledge or your yeah. position or I'm sure you've done a lot of teacher trainings you mentioned before or you taught as well maybe in classroom something challenging came up unexpected uh-huh uh -huh. I think I think I think I have a very good community and I, and I always like to tell people I'm not a, a I, I am not a positively, I am always positive and my interactions are usually positive even when something uh, bad can happen, but I'm not toxically positive. <laughs> I, I wanna make that clear. <laughs> but I like to see silver linings in things that happen. But I think when you, when you ask me this, that question, I like to think about how, and, and I would encourage people to do this, uh, how connecting with people from other parts of the world really broadens and opens your mind to other perspectives and other ideas. And it really makes you challenge your own biases and prejudices in terms of thinking that, and, and especially in Honduras, our country, people like to think like, we're a poor country, we cannot do anything, nothing can happen here. And people usually seem very negative. And, and, and I like to tell people, yes, we are a poor country, we're a small country, we're a violent country, but there are things that can be done. And we might want to sit down and just mellow in the negative, but if we start thinking about little positive changes that we can make, then we can get out of that negativity and actually make a change. And I like in, in my Facebook and, and George was saying is at the beginning, I like to post positive things about my country. So people usually uh, complain, it's like everything, nothing is working here and the system <laughs> is uh, ruined and broken. But I like to post things like great things that people are doing and recognize what people are doing. And I always like to post things about Hondurans that are 
uh, have being successful all over the world or in Honduras. And I post eh, eh, Orgullo Hondureño, Noticias Positivas de Nuestro País. And that's Honduran mm -hmm. pride, right? Uh, successful and uh, Hondurans from our country and good news from our country. So I like to say that because it is very easy to focus on the negative stuff because as humans, like we are kind of built that way. But sometimes looking at the positive takes a little bit of time. And from my interactions with people from all over the world, I have found that we are not that different. We are all humans. We are imperfect. We make mistakes. But many of us are seeking ways to improve our world and to make it a better place. And especially, I think language educators, we are special because we make a positive impact in the lives of people. We're not only teaching them another language, be it English or be it another language, we're teaching them or we're helping them explore the culture and the traditions of another place, of, of another uh, language that really is going to open their minds to great things. So I don't think that I focus on negative things, but I focus more on positive things, but I'm not toxic <laughs> in terms of being <laughs> that's positive. <a> <laughs> That's a, that's a beautiful way to end uh, this podcast. I'm, I'm sure George really appreciates your answer as uh, he's Mr. Positive Man as well. Absolutely. Um, and I'm going to contribute and say something else, which it cannot be coincidental. I, have, I woke up today at 7 o'clock. I went for my morning walk. I listened to an amazing audio book by Ryan Nemec, who is um, uh, the father of the character Strengths. He said exactly the same thing that Graciela says now. I had another conversation with my wife watching a TV show just before this podcast started. We had the same conversation, and now Graciela mention, mentions it. It's very natural. Uh, through the negative, you're going to find the positive, because that's life. You cannot expect that everything is going to be positive. And the way you um, work with that and you face that is what makes you a positive person. And it's exactly what you, Graciela, are doing. Yeah, by posting these positive things, it's not something toxic or something that you're doing for with an agenda. You are tweaking the negative in a way and you create positive feelings maybe during um, a negative day for many people in the world. And... We need to thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah, it's very important to remain positive in the face of uh, challenging circumstances because there are challenging circumstances all over the world. Absolutely. 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 Yeah. 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 Couldn't well, agree more. Well, I hope all of our listeners today have a positive remaining of the day. And um, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Gracias. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Hopefully we can come to Honduras as well and learn even more uh, about you and your country. Next year, November, we have a date in Honduras, in Copan, to get to know the Copan ruins, but also for great professional development. Absolutely. For the 10 years. Yeah. Yes. Thank <laughs> you so much. All the best. Thank you.